You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, today we have Javier Barnes with us. Um, Javier, would you like to uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Well, uh, hello to everybody, and um, I wanted to thank Tom and and the guys on the on the podcast for for having me here. Um, I said that to him before we started recording, but I don't have the impression that I'm at the level of of uh, some other professionals that uh, Tom is interviewing here. I'm just I'm just a random guy. Um, so thanks for the opportunity and, and I hope that, uh, you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, cool. Well, Javier, um, super excited to dig into this. Um, tell us how you got into gaming. Well, it was kind of, kind of weird, um, because I was planning to do a master on, once I finished uh, college, I was planning to do a master on, uh, artificial intelligence. And then I started some research, you know what I mean? Like before we started the actual course and I get signed up and paid them the college money and everything. Um, I started investigating a little bit. I saw that, well, one of the biggest topics on AI, it's AI for gaming. It's actually one of the most profitable um, usages of the, of, the, of the technology. And... Uh, so I started researching on that. I had been playing games for my entire life, and um, this opportunity came up. Uh, there was a there, there is a big studio, a big studio in Barcelona, a big um, game loft studio. Uh, mm-hmm. the, those are the guys that did uh, Despicable Me, Minion Rush, As- uh, Asphalt Franchise. They managed the Asphalt Franchise and some other stuff. And I was kind of. Um, lucky in a way uh, they were looking for one guy to kind of bring coffees and, and do like the stuff that no one else no, no one else wanted to do and part of the stuff that that uh, nobody wanted to do was uh, game balancing and um, free-to-play monetization because back on the day <laughs> at that time game loft were starting to experiment with free-to-play it was like about 10 years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so free-to-play was kind of a new thing. And there was a lot of people thinking it was going to be just the flavor of the month. Um, so I had the chance to, you know, do all that for, for several productions. And then turn it. I started to see that, that that was way more than just uh, the flavor of the month. It was more than a fashion that it was going away. I, I felt mm-hmm. that free-to-play was going to and entirely like the entire microtransaction monetization model uh, was something that uh, was here in the gaming industry to stay. So I, I, I kind of specialized on it. I was doing that for about six years for, for many, many games. I helped uh, several studios from Gameloft to transition to the free-to-play model. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they have a lot of great, they had a lot of great professionals, they still do, but they had a lot of professionals that they were proficient at doing games. They were not proficient at doing free to play games. And that was kind of a, a big shock. The, the entire way how you build a free to play game is, it has nothing to do, right? with uh you know when when you're just gonna sell the game and forget about it so so yeah that that was kind of my story that was that was 
how I got into it. I was just lucky. Cool. That's a fantastic story. And then it looks like after that, you kind of jumped over to do some stuff over at Social Point. Um, and then... Yeah, basically after, after six years or something like that, doing uh, mostly focused on monetization and uh, being monetization specialist for many games and franchises and stuff, I kind of felt like, okay, I, I want to do something more. I, I, I want to touch all elements of design. And by that point, I've always had the impression that monetization is actually kind of the, the last step, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually interconnected with everything else of the game. It's not, it's not something that you have the game in one side and then uh, as a completely independent stuff or something like this, completely disconnected, you have monetization. I, I feel that it's everything It's interconnected and you can not think about monetization without thinking holistically about the game. Um, so I wanted a more general uh, yeah. game design role. So I, 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 I took a lead game designer position at Social Point managing uh, Monster Legends, which back on the day was uh, one of the most top grossing games uh, from Spain. And uh, 2.5 years after that, three years after that, I basically had trained my replacement. Uh, so I, I started a new production on, on, social, on social Point. It's actually been soft launched. It's called Rageful League. Download it and, and give feedback to the guys. And like more recently, like about two months ago, I decided to, um, you know, that I wanted I wanted to change. So I went into indie development, and I'm currently I have my own company. I'm doing some consultancy work, and I'm actually working in in a couple of uh, projects that are very niche, not necessarily something related <laughs> to what I've been doing. Uh, previously, because uh, they are visual novels and graphic adventures and stuff like that, so <laughs> nothing that is going to be on the top grossing. But um, it was something that I wanted to do for a long time. Well, welcome to the wonderful world of entrepreneurship. It's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of fun, even though it is it is kind of different than what I, I had in, on my mind. I thought it was going to be like a lot of doing games and not a lot of bullshit. But it's kind of the other way around. Like I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff that is not related to the game itself. I hope it's just because I just started, and maybe in one month or something <laughs> like that, I can jump into full development stage. But right now, I'm like setting up the company, the contracts, uh, hiring people, and all that. That's that's like eating 90% of my time. I'm I'm looking forward to get hands-on on the products. <laughs> Definitely. Well. It's really exciting if you can find the best people or people that are actually better than you and and then you kind of give them an idea that you had and they take it even further than you expected. Yeah. It's, it's pretty magical. Actually, yeah, actually one thing that I'm doing right now, maybe it's not necessarily that, what you're saying, like getting people that is more experienced than me. Um, is because those people will be expensive, right? Um, <laughs> what I'm doing right now, it's um, I'm working with very young people uh, some of them, it's their, their first developments uh, or the first games they are, they are developing. And, and um, part of, the, th- part of the, the idea, what I wanted to do stuff by myself is because I knew a lot of people that 
uh, were really young. They didn't have actual experience in video games, but I felt they had the talent. They they just mm -hmm. needed the chance. So it's uh, we're kind of working together on projects that look quite fine, and at the same time, they're getting trained, and hopefully in the future, they will be able to access proper gaming company and like have a, have a future, right? Um, basically, I there's a group, a group of kids uh, I met while playing GTA V, and the the entire crew was they they met each other at um, at the psych, uh, the psychologist. I'm not sure if that's the exact word in English, but they all suffered of depression, and uh, they were like really young guys. They were like 16 to 18 years old. And um, I spoke with the parents of some of them, and they were like, "Oh, we have, we are we have been trying to get them involved in studies and I don't know music and some other uh, sports." Um, and the kids they they didn't stick, and um, for me it was kind of kind of fun and and kind of kind of beautiful the fact that working with them in game development, I said like, "Hey." You guys like games? Uh, let's build something together. What what kind of what kind of game would you like to play, etc.? And by teaching them how to use the editor, how to use Unity and code and everything, uh, they kind of get engaged. And actually, I we we speak every week, and they told me how much getting into game development, even if it's uh, in an indie stage and not mm -hmm. like not something super serious with you know a lot of money behind and everything they it really it really helped them on 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 a therapeutic le level right like uh they they don't feel as depressed anymore and for me that's kind of beautiful it's it's something that kind of pushes me to keep on investing on on this type yeah that is that's a fantastic story congrats on that thank you cool um well you know, looking, so you've been in gaming for what, about 10 years now? Um, yeah, I've been, I've been around, I've been around. <laughs> yeah, you've been around and you've seen the the full transition to, you know, free to play, especially on the mobile side of things. But, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to be, you know, a little retrospective on, you know, what has happened in the last 10 years. And then, you know, looking forward to the next 10 years, you know, what changes or things do you think will be happening in the industry? So, okay, so it's actually two questions, right? Like one is what, what I've seen in, in 10 years. I yep. actually, I, I expect to turn that into an article at some point because I, <laughs> I would write it down somewhere. But basically, my impression is that this industry, at least in mobile, it changes every three to four years. It, it suffers like a massive change, right? In the last 10 years, what, what I've seen is there's been a couple of transformations. I would say two big transformations. Uh, probably a third one that is going on right now. Uh, the first one was um, the whole thing about um, uh, moving moving to mobile because um, back in the day, mobile was really really small market. Uh, it was a market where, for example, GameLove was a dominant company. Uh, it's a still a big company, but it's not like maybe you know, in the top five, but back on the day it was, right? When when the games were Java and um, the whole thing changed with uh, the, the eruption of smartphones and the, um, you know, the power to 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 move games kind of changed a lot. 3D came in, etc. That was something that 10 years ago, it, was, it wasn't there, right? 
um, well, maybe 12 years ago or 15 years <laughs> ago. I don't know. Um, and that was like a, the ma a massive change that kind of uh, started to bring a lot of money into mobile gaming. Before that, mo mobile gaming, it was not, it was just a fraction of the money that maybe consoles or PC was doing at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the first things was like that that become a, a big business and with a lot of eyes and a, a lot of a lot of professionals from from everywhere around started to came to mobile and maybe the second transformation was the the coming of free to play um, that that kind of changed everything right the 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 companies that were dominating before the the beginning of free to play the, the, you know the, the entire power structure it completely changed and uh, the skills themselves changed as well, right? Uh, from very basic stuff like how to model a, a, a difficulty curve, right? Before that, before free to play, <laughs> a difficulty curve like it was like, okay, it starts easy, it starts to get difficult, 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 and then by the end of it, it has to be really difficult, right? And <laughs> completing the game is really challenging. Um, but you cannot do that in free-to-play because you want to retain your users for as long as possible, right? This is something that you, Tom, are, are talking the entire time in the in the social networks, right? Like <laughs> retention comes first, and and you want to keep um, your players playing the game as long as possible, especially because there is so much competition. If they find that your game is too difficult and too, too challenging, they are gonna just jump to the next thing or if they feel that they have completed the full experience or that the experience that they have in front of them is going to be just a repetition of what they have just lived mm -hmm. uh, they're going to change right they're going to look for something new and that's what you don't want because you want to keep on milking those players keep them engaged in your service for years and years mm -hmm. um, that completely changes you cannot do a, a difficulty course like you used to do um in in the previous um type of development right and it, it kind of changed everything uh balancing as well like uh, on the old school design it was not a problem if balancing was broken at the end even in fact it was kind of designed to break at the end like economy was supposed economy in games was supposed to break by the end so at the end you could have access to everything and you basically had overcame every single limitation that the game economy was putting into you. So yep. you had the, the feeling of completion, mm -hmm. but that's not like that anymore. And actually a big challenge that you have in games that have been running for a while, especially if they were released like maybe five to six years ago, is the fact that some of their economies are, are like completely broken, right? At this point, they have soft currencies that are completely out of scope. They don't have maybe the coin sinks that they need to keep the economy um, healthy, et cetera. Yep. So that, that, that was a mass, massive thing, right? It, it was its own science. I remember maybe four to, or five years ago, there were a lot of uh, major gaming companies like EA, um, Activision, like the bigger, you know, the, the, the companies that do games for real, right? They were yep. moving to mobile and they were trying to apply uh, the learnings and the, and the lessons, the insights that they had collected by doing games on PC and on console. And I mm -hmm. remember a lot of developers saying like, okay, now 
you have been doing games in mobile for a while, but now as guys from console, we're gonna we're gonna teach you how to do games. <laughs> and and it, they didn't work. I mean, th- their <laughs> games didn't work, right? Yep. Um, because doing mo- games in mobile and doing games as a service, it's its own science. It's um, it's completely different from from doing games as a closed experience. Um, and that actually is kind of the third uh, transformation. That it's what I'm seeing right now. That those companies that they they hit hard uh, five years ago, now they are coming back and they learned, and uh, <laughs> they're doing stuff like Destiny Two. Uh, they're doing stuff like Fortnite, um, mm. Mother um, Call of Duty Mobile, yep. Call of Duty. Uh, War Warzone is the last yep, one. Yep. I don't know. Um, and th- those games are really good. L- those those guys have learned how to turn their games into services, mm. um, and now they're kind of eating the mobile space because, of course, they they do have like really big franchises and yep. IPs that they can use in order to bring attention to to their game uh, to to their new games. They also have the the money to buy. Uh, successful developers from mobile. And mm. I think that's what's driving right now, the, the period that we are right now, which is uh, from a model that was very mul- multipolar, right? They were like thousand small companies. Um, now, a lot of those companies, they are agglutinating um, some of the different smaller companies. And now I think we're in a period of consolidation. And by the, the end of it, it's going to be like, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 big companies holding up the entire 200 or 300 top grossing positions in mobile uh, instead of the myriad of uh, gaming companies that we have right now. So that's that's what has happened, in my opinion, the last 10 years. Even if, if of course, we could talk about a lot of stuff like how everything has become an MMO and MMO and stuff like that. Like everything has so social features, even games where maybe social features do not <laughs> make a lot of sense. They have integrated that into their, their core systems. Um, and what's going to happen in the next 10 years? That's, I don't know. I guess if I knew <laughs> I would be making <laughs> a lot more money than I'm making. Right. Um, I think that what's got, what's going to happen is first a consolidation of the market. Uh, people has been talking about that for a long time, and I, I think finally it's going to happen. Uh, just because pro- even if pro- uh, developing for mobile, it's 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 cheap and kind kind of right now everybody can do it in a way, and there's a lot of investment, so you can get the money to do it. Um, what it's limited is the ability to put your games in the eyes of the of the players. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the guys that have the money, they are going to first be able to be the guys that I think the user acquisition is going to become more of a entry barrier. Right mm-hmm. now it isn't uh, because there are ways where you can lower your uh, CPIs yep. by different methods. But I think those methods, they are going to start to be very difficult. And what's going to happen is that user acquisition costs costs are going to become a barrier, an entry barrier on the business. And I think that also what's going to happen 
is that whenever you have somebody something that is valuable, you're gonna get bought like like this, right? Management and acquisition is gonna become mm-hmm. um, something that happens earlier on the development uh, on the development process. Right now, you know, companies are. I have the impression, at least, that companies are like buying products that are really big. They're doing like big, mass, big and massive um, acquisitions. Yep. But there's a limited amount of purchases that you can do that way, right? Like right, maybe right. I don't know, uh, 100 purchases after <laughs> the last one, and that there's no there's nothing else to buy that it's massive. So I think by that point, people is going to start buying not big stuff, but things that they think that they are going to be big, right? Mm. Like developers that have very good ideas, but not, but they haven't reached top grossing positions yet. Right. And I think that that's going to be like a transformation that maybe it's going to affect the business maybe in the next, I don't know, two years, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that indie gaming is gonna is gonna rise a lot. I think uh, it's already growing, and some genres that are right now entirely a niche of of indie companies uh, are going to grow to points where they are going to be start to look like they have enough business for big companies to enter in. I'm specifically talking on of visual novels. Uh, if you check the amount of visual novels that are being published on Steam right now, it's massive. And I think that that trend is going to hit mobile at some point. And yep. uh, I think that visual novel together with other narrative um, genres are going to become like a thing, a bigger thing than what they are right now. Um, and I don't know. I think one of the big things is going to be like blockchain and cryptocurrency and integration of cryptocurrency of in gaming, mm-hmm. like being able to trade, uh, right? Sorry, like having your inbe- your gaming inventory transform into a kind of cryptocurrency where you can sell your in-game inventory and transform it into currency that you can use to purchase stuff in other games and speculative mm-hmm. market a speculative market in in games inventories and stuff like that. I think that's going to be a big thing. Um, but right now, it kind of sounds like science fiction. So <laughs> I don't know. Ask me in three years. <laughs> it's a cool idea. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Cool. Uh, those are really great predictions. It'll be fun to, to see how everything um, continues to develop. Um, yeah, let's uh, switch gears a little bit, and uh, I'd love to talk a little bit more about uh, free-to-play game monetization and data-oriented design. I know you were kind of you know, at the start of how that was introduced at Gameloft and stuff, uh, but you hear people talking about you know, the importance of player data and you know, using that to create you know, events and, and offers and things to you yeah. know, boost your monetization and stuff, but like how do you actually go from, you know, having none of that stuff to really designing a game for like free to play monetization and then, you know, having those data oriented design practices where you're actually creating stuff using the data? Yeah. So when it comes to uh, 
you know, data-oriented design is kind of like the standard right now in the in the industry. It didn't it didn't used to be right before. It was like I don't know the designers were in their magic tower and <laughs> they were like thinking, "This is gonna be great," and then they did it and it was great. And um, the only problem with that it was it, it, it's that, that there was only like maybe ten wizards, guys like Peter Jacks. Uh, um, Jackson from Jackson Games and like uh, Gary Gigex and I don't know, those geniuses, they were able to on their heads like invent a game and make it happen. Um, uh, but that that kind of proved when the market became really competitive, when the free to play market became really competitive, um, they kind of stopped working. Um, and it was replaced by using data to take decisions. So not rely so much on subjectivity, on what the designer thought was fun, but rather watching the, the player behavior to determine if something is objectively fun <laughs> and, um, you know, um, gathering player feedback and inte integrating that and like having a more scientific and numbers-based way to determine if something is fun or or not. Um, that that was a that was a massive that was a massive change. Uh, I have the impression that maybe we have gone too far. Um, and right now I think that there is a trend where we're kind of moving away from data-oriented design, not necessarily forgetting about it, but enriching it with um, with the understanding that we are doing games at the end of the day, right? <laughs> and that we cannot expect to do fun games just looking at, exclusively looking at the data, but rather right. looking at the data is another tool to, to make you take good decisions, evaluate your decisions, uh, the effects of your decisions, and... Um, and kind of do the detective work, but having a good detective is, is is still important. And I think companies like, for example, Supercell, even if they invest a lot in in analytics, they are actually really really good at taking decisions that go beyond uh, the analytics and transforming data into into insights. That's mm -hmm. probably the 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 big piece of the the big piece of the puzzle. That right now it's I feel it's missing a lot in the in the industry. I think we we have a, a lot of you know the industry have, has grown a lot and it has not grown exclusively by bringing people that had a sincere passion about games, but also bringing a lot of people that may come from I don't know a business uh, environment, mm -hmm. a business background, or maybe from banking or from other areas. Um, and, and and these people is getting progressively trained into starting to think like game designers. Um, so I think that data oriented design is kind of becoming more more and more a data and uh, insights oriented design in a way. And in the industry, I think that everybody is starting to become more of a game designer. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. <laughs> It definitely gets into that. Um, when you, you know, were working with that sort of data-oriented design, uh, you mentioned player feedback 
how did you guys collect that? Did you try to have like one-on-one conversations with players? Were you, you know, watching sessions? Were you sending surveys? Like, what did you find to be most effective? So before I enter into social point, I have to say I was relying almost exclusively on data um, because on GameLove we have we had so many games and. Uh, the, that it was very, uh, I basically, I basically, I was working in so many games that the contact that I had with a specific players of a specific game was kind of limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and also by, by having access to so many data and so many players over the different, the entire roster of games of, of GameLoft, um, I w- it was very easy to compare data between, ga- one, between similar games and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and extract a lot of learnings without necessarily asking for direct feedback from players. And that'll kind of change when I entered in Social Point. Social Point, they use something they call, I'm not sure they, they call it, but I call it like that, like user-oriented design. And they they have a very, it's not a company, they, they, they don't have a lot of games, right? They, they have a, a limited roster of games, and that allows them to have a very personal relationship with the players. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the period that I was in, in Monster Legends, uh, we kind of had the objective of turning that into like 200%. Um, so what we did is first have a very good data, cap- uh, data gathering on, on your players. Because player, you, you cannot just listen to what people say. You need to, people is going to be very good about telling <laughs> telling you what they think, but not necessarily, or how they feel, but not necessarily what they want or what is the best for the game, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know, if if, if you ask players, like almost any player on any free-to-play game, what's the thing we should do? They're going to tell you like, just do the game cheaper. Um, And that's not, (laughs) maybe at some point, like maybe you can, you know, Maybe yep. your game is too expensive, but uh, it's not. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. Price elasticity is a thing, um, and um, it, not that 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 wouldn't solve all the problems in the in the world, right? Maybe it would. Uh, there's one point where if you do your game cheaper and cheaper, you start to earn less money, right? <laughs> um, but they are very good at telling you how they feel. And actually, um, I think their feedback is really, really good when it comes to gameplay stuff. Uh, maybe not that much to business. When it comes to business, uh, you know, they, they are misguided. Uh, or it's, they are going to tell you stuff that they pisses them off, but not necessarily the, the right solutions. But mm-hmm. when it comes to gameplay, I think the feedback from users, it's really, really good. Um, so what we did was, in one side, we we had a, a lot of data from players and a lot of uh, you know data scientists, a lot of analysis done on where, where they churn, what kind of things they they play the most, uh, acquisition of resources, etc. And then we also did a lot of interviews. I am a big fan of doing polls with users. Uh, we also integrated uh, Discord in the game and. Um, and WhatsApp, actually. And I think what's what's very, very important is uh, to establish a personal relationship with players. Game polls are really, really useful. But the thing is, like, if you send a poll to all your players, you're kind of getting 
too much of an anonymous feedback. And you're going maybe a lot of the people that answers may not rep or a lot of the big numbers of a game may not may not necessarily represent uh, the engaged areas of your of your game, right? Mm. Like maybe say your game has 100% po game population, right? So out of your DAU, maybe I don't know. 60% they are not engaged players. They are just players that are extremely casual and they are not located at the end game. And maybe these people, they, they are not engaged enough with, with, with the game. And maybe they are not the, the people that you should, be, you should be listening to when you're thinking on the end game and what new stuff to add in the end game uh, of your game. Maybe those players are better for telling you what are the problems on the onboarding stages or the beginning of the game, but mm -hmm. not necessarily what's to tell you what, what what's what's better at the end, right? Maybe that's only I don't know 20% of your game population, <laughs> and you have to make sure that you are listening what this 20% is is telling you. Um, so I'm I'm a strong believer of not only doing polls for the entire population, but doing polls for specific clusters and mm. segments of, of players. And also building a profile of the players that you are talking with. I felt it was really, really useful for us to do interviews with, uh, with players and, and getting to know those specific players because even in that 20% or I don't know, the top 5% of your most engaged users not everybody is the same. Maybe you have some some people that is more into collection, and actually it's mm -hmm. it's less into combat systems. But but maybe you can have people that are a lot into the combat system, and they don't like that much the collection aspect. And just building one game persona and try to put <laughs> these two people into this game same game persona, it's not going to create a realistic model that you can work with right right um so i i feel i'm a strong believer of uh getting to know people not that much uh demographics or an anonymous segment but rather uh, real people what are their motivations what are their lives about what kind of stuff do they like yep. for the game and and i felt that that helped us to build the, the strongest personas and the most reliable game personas because they were real people. <laughs> yeah, so, I totally agree. So actually, it, it kind of, it when I was in Monster Legends, it kind of went into all directions. We had a lot of data. We had uh, a lot of um, polls for the entire uh, population of the game and data gathering methods for the entire population of the game. But we also put a lot of effort on meeting specific people and talking with 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 uh, real people. Um, it came to one point where I had a I was in a WhatsApp group with maybe seven or ten of the uh, top whales of the game, and <laughs> and that was insane. It was it was super fun because you. Uh, I got into their heads. I, I, I was able to see what they were talking and, you know, uh, if the game stopped working for three minutes uh, at 3 a.m., um, they make sure I knew because they were <laughs> like writing on my, on my WhatsApp and, and it was great. It was great because I, I made a lot of friends. Not only, yeah. they, they were not all, they ended up not only being my customers or my players, but also being my friends. Yeah. And um, I, I felt this, 
interacting with, with that and making the entire Monster Legends team interact with real people, they, it helped them to care more about the game and to better think about uh, and better understand what players felt um, was important for the game. Yeah. So I, I think we've pretty much touched on it, but one of the questions I did want to cover today was, you know, how to involve the community in your live game, kind of your experience with Monster Legends and stuff. Is there any other aspects of, you know, involving the community that you think would be notable or should be called out for folks that, you know, want to start involving their community more? Well, in my opinion, like a couple of good advices is, um, it's cool to have a, I mean, you need to have a way to, share information with the entire with the entire community and uh sh yeah s speak to the entire community and do like official communications etc but it's even better if uh if 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 if, also, if if you mix that together with uh having a group of players that that you directly interact with. If you try to have official communications, you may end up in the situation where you create a lot of social networks and you communicate with your players among a huge amount of social networks. I feel this is not the, this is a good thing to share the information among the entire community, but it's mm. not a good way to establish one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships with your players. So what I would advise is do your communications in as many social networks as you can, but focus your personal communication or like interacting with, with players, uh, the, the back and forth and conversations and everything and having your developers logged in, et cetera, in, in a specific social network. In our case, it was Discord. We were pushing people to join our Discord if they wanted to interact with us. The other social networks, it was more about us sharing information like official information about releases features etc like how things were worked uh balancing changes and stuff like that but mm. the way where you could talk with people and like sorry talk with the developers and get back and forth and start a conversation it was our discord okay. um and uh that that means that your efforts and how much you divert uh, divert um team efforts on communicating, it's way more focused. Um, so you, you know, it's less wasted effort. Focus on one specific social network for uh, interacting with the community. And also, uh, even if you encourage your developers to uh, kind of stay or visit regularly the Discord, or whatever social network you want to use, I think it's very, very cool to also establish a kind of a schedule with the players. So I don't know, stuff like Fridays are the ask me anything day. So, or I don't know, Fridays from six to seven European time, it's the, it's the moment where uh, the lead game designer is gonna be online. So it's the moment where if you want to talk with the lead game designer, it's the moment where you have to log in. Because otherwise, you're gonna have people writing in your social network at, and at any time, and maybe asking questions and then not getting answered for two or three days or maybe 24 hours because you cannot be constantly logging right. in. Because right. you have you know, a life and, 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 a, and a real job to do, right? <laughs> um, and and if, if somebody asks a question and doesn't get answered, 
that's that's how you lose uh, a member of your community. Um, the the more you invest in the community, the more you talk with them, the more you talk with you you talk with them as if they were real people instead of just a random name that appears in a in a chat box. Uh, yeah. The more they are gonna get involved, and and that's how you build a community uh, out of real people. Um, so I think that focusing on a specific social network and trying to create moments or try to create a schedule what is where you focalize the interaction with the community is probably um, some of the points where that, that would be helpful for people that wants to create a community or maybe mm -hmm. level up their community. And other than that, it's just listening to them and trying to involve them with the decisions and and everything right like if you are thinking about doing a great feature why don't you ask for opinion among your players uh, yeah. i feel that a lot of companies sometimes they do features as if they were punishing to players they want to keep them hiding and maybe hide what are the monetization involved or what is going to be the pricing and and everything and then when they release they get a massive uh, backlash from the community um, because they they built stuff without taking the community into account and now they want the community to go through that hole they did right yeah and uh, I think it's 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 uh, it happened to me but I think it's better if you involve the community early on the on the um, on the design process, as soon as you have an idea, okay, I want to do this kind of stuff, I'm gonna share this with a group of players that are my ambassadors, or that are players that that I feel they are representative of the entire community. And let's see what are their opinions, what are their concerns. Okay, so I wanted to add this, I don't know, this new thingy, and you are, you are concerned about the costs or about, I don't know, some points of the monetization, mm -hmm. I maybe didn't think about it as a designer and I can integrate your feedback. And one of the points that is really, really good about that is that once you release the feature or the new content, uh, those, that people, they become your ambassadors. They are going to be the, mm -hmm. the most fanatic defenders of what you're releasing. And they are going to be the guys selling what you just did, I mean, what you just released to the rest of the community because they were involved on the creation. It's not just your kid, it's also their kid, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for example, in Monster Legends, we have involved a lot uh, the players on the creation of monsters, which like the new units and, yep. and what are what are going to be their design, etc. In fact, if I'm not wrong, they are still doing this. Um, the players themselves are the ones that are introducing to the community the new monsters. It's not <laughs> the company is not saying like, okay, we are going to release this new creature and it has these abilities in combat. It's useful for this and this and this. It's not the company that they are doing it anymore. Uh, they are sharing the data with with uh, members of the community, and then the the community itself is is the people that is going. It, it's going to go to the rest of the community and they are going to say like, okay, this new monster is amazing. It's going to be so fun uh, because it does this and this and this, and this is going to open this, this kind of new strategies, etc. And I think that makes everything more true. It's not just a company yeah. that is trying to sell stuff to some customers and it's all about transactions of money and no game at all, but it's rather 
a, a live thing, right? It's for from players to players. They they are going to they, they are talking about how fun it's going to be and what kind of strategy is going to be this about. And it kind of makes it everything more true. It's not just called money. It's about yeah, the game. I, I think about games like uh, League of Legends or Clash Royale where, you know, they introduce a new champion or something and players just all kind of get upset because they're like, oh, they're just making something new. It's like a cash grab to get us all to buy the, you know, new champion or card or whatnot. Um, but yeah, allowing the players to actually introduce it as, hey, we actually helped create this and this is why, you know, we introduced these things because we wanted to, you know, change up the meta at the end game or, you know, different things like that. So that is amazing. I think one other um, a company that I would call out is uh, Jagex with their RuneScape, where I think for a lot of their features, they have players vote. And if it's not 75% of the voters like saying, yeah, let's do this feature, at least for old school RuneScape, they, you know, will just scrap it and they won't move forward with it. So um, super powerful to have your community being able to like and drive what's coming next. So that is really cool. Um, exactly. And what, what I felt is I'm a, I'm a lazy person and involving community <laughs> in, in when it comes to balancing, it's great because um, engaged players of an RPG or actually engaged players of any kind of game, they, they are really good at balancing. They are gonna, they're going to identify when something is going to break the game. They're going to identify when something is going to... Um, you know, it's going to be fun or it's going to be useless. Um, and honestly, I would like to say that a lot of those ideas are, are mine and that I'm a genius, but actually everything comes from Magic the Gathering. Um, <laughs> more, and more, <laughs> more and more, I'm feeling I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of merit from Magic the Gathering, but those it, in Magic the Gathering, they, they have something, I'm, I'm sure you know, but yeah. um, I, I always like to mention, but they have something, it's called the Future Future League. Um, where they have uh, the top some of the top players and like extremely engaged players and designers and everything, they are playing with the content that it's going to be released in maybe two years time, and and that that's great. I mean, who is better to tell you that if something is balanced or if it totally breaks the game or if it's fun or not, than your actual players and the best players and the players that are more engaged uh, in the game, and that's actually I feel. That's actually great for Magic the Gathering because uh, not only they get a lot of playtesting for free and mm -hmm. um, and a lot of feedback from 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 very clever people, but also they 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 kind of they are involving their their top players uh, into that process and and ultimately these people is going to be the gurus for the for everyone else. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I know we're, uh, getting close to time here, but uh, a couple things that I thought would be great to cover before we do. Um, so I know in monster legends, you guys did a lot of your live ops optimization through automation. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that started and what that process looks like? Yeah. Um, so the thing is, when I entered into uh, Monster Legends, like the first thing I noticed, it was my first lead game designer position. And I was super excited. Oh, man, I'm going to have um, this many. I, I had people under my, 
my management before, right? But it was it was about mm -hmm. uh, balancing and systems only, not about the entire game. So I had this idea, oh, we're gonna do so many, you know, things and brainstorming for new monsters and stuff like that. And I quickly realized that was not possible. Why it wasn't possible? Because a lot of their work was actually not doing game design at all. It was about setting up uh, live ops and like just coding stuff, right? Just, uh, you know, uh, they, they uh, there was an offer, so you have to input the offer. And there was, I don't know, this weekend or once per month, there was a twice XP thingy and somebody had to code that or an event or stuff like that. And um, uh, some of these events, they were, they were kind of repeating, not exactly the same event, but maybe um, some of the live ops, they, they would, with similar mechanics, they would come yeah. back uh, the next one month and then the next month and mm -hmm. just with different rewards and entire different theme and maybe different balancing. Um, and maybe the activities that the player had to engage, they were a little bit different, but, but that was it. And that was stealing a lot of time from the designers. I felt, uh, well, me and, 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 um, the producers and the live ops, uh, specialists in our game, uh, felt uh, that was actually using wrong or game designers. There was it was stealing a lot of time from them mm. that could be used uh, somewhere else. And uh, this, together with uh, Diego Lavajos and uh, Albert Custodio, uh, yeah. which are two great professionals. I think Albert Custodio is going to be on the uh, Pocket Gamer Helsinki Connects thingy. And he's doing a lot of stuff. Follow him on LinkedIn. Uh, he's doing a lot of conferences and stuff like that. Um, we've, we said like, okay, uh, there's a lot of stuff on here that are going, it, it, are, it is just uh, scripting. Uh, so, so let's see how we can accelerate that. How we did that. So the first thing we did was we created an Excel file and we, uh, created estimations. We made people, uh, all the designers, uh, ask, uh, tell us estimations of time for setting up and for scripting the different live ops that we were running on the time. So we then, with this, we then, let's say, um, um, Progressive Island, which is a type of event, uh, was taking us three days of work every progressive island and maybe a team race which is another type of event that we have in the game uh it was taking us i don't know uh two hours and stuff like that right mm. so we yeah. identified which which were the most costly um the most costly uh live ops and then we started to work okay how can we create an excel file that just by putting uh, some numbers like, I don't know, I want this specific reward to take this amount of time and this specific reward to take this other amount of time or these activities and so on. It can automatically generate the script that you need to put in the game. And we started to work like that. We started focusing first on the stuff that was taking us the most time. Yep. And then when that stuff that was taking three days, then it was taking two hours. Then we moved into the next thing and in, then into the next thing. So if somebody wants to 
automatize a lot of live ops, what I would recommend is uh, first identify the stuff that is is very custom to the event and that it's not automatizable and try to get it rid of it as, as much as possible. And then try to focus on the stuff that takes the most time. Um, because if something is taking three days to set up, probably is the, is the area where you can optimize the most and you can find so quick wins. Yep. While something that takes you 10 minutes, probably it's already very well optimized. Mm -hmm. And maybe by reducing something from three days to half of it, you win a lot of time, but by reducing something that it's 10 minutes to five minutes, you don't win that much time, right? Yep. And we started to do that. Um, uh, we started to do that and, and we actually kind of countered the entire thing. And now uh, designers in Monster Legends, they, they, they can spend most of their time actually doing game design because the scripting is gone like just poof. It's just <laughs> taking a fraction of the time that they used to take. Um, tools for that. Excel files that you can do, make Excel files that transform all your data and stuff into JSON, quite into JSON files quite easily. And also if you have somebody that is proficient on HTML5 or similar, um, you, you can create custom tools for the new stuff that, 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 um, that well, for the stuff that you run. Um, one of the things we did was we didn't, com we didn't consider that the feature was completed until we had generated the tools to automatize it. Mm. And that was, that was really cool because it meant that any new stuff that we generated, um, it, it, kinda, it didn't increase the amount of uh, maintenance work that the game required. Just because we considered that part of getting the feature done was getting the automatization done as well. And I feel that not cutting that corner is very useful on the long term. That's amazing. That's super great advice. Um, cool. Well, I, I think we're about out of time here. Um, but uh, Javier, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I feel like we're going to have to have you back on the podcast again, just to continue the conversation. And uh, I'd love you know, to, I'd love to get some more I, I'm, I'm sorry because I like to speak a lot and I digress a lot and I kind of just <laughs> talk a lot. So sorry if I took a lot of time. Oh no, uh, this has been fantastic. I've, I feel like I'm just trying to absorb all the information in here um, and, and look forward to, to sharing it with everyone um, and getting feedback. Um, the, the one last thing I do want to, call out here. Uh, Javier, if folks have questions and, and want to get in touch with you, what's what's the best way for folks to do that? I think the best way is my LinkedIn. I, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I also have a Twitter, but nobody interacts with me <laughs> yet, I hope. Um, so just just search, search for me in LinkedIn. I'm actually posting uh, articles all the time and uh, because I'm very lazy, I've discovered that if I do a post on LinkedIn talking about a topic, people answers, and then I can use those, those answers to build an, build an article in half the time. So, so I incentivate everybody to add me on LinkedIn, and and we can chat together and and have a good time. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll post a link to it as well. But you've got a really great blog. I think it's jb-dev.net. Yeah, yeah. I probably should have put a. 
a more professional name like I don't know mobile gaming free to play advice <laughs> I don't know whatever but I just did it I know I, I just said like I, I wanted to explain some stuff and I, I what I like is doing games I don't like being a guru or or anything like that um, so I, I prefer to have like a personal blog rather than a professional blog in a way but yeah definitely but yeah for you know anyone doing uh, mobile game product and live op stuff, his blog is full of fantastic stuff. So I encourage you to Thank all you. check it out and uh, connect with him on LinkedIn. So Javier, it's been so great talking to you today and uh, look forward to connecting in the future. Sure. Uh, call me over again. I mean, I'm, I'm, it was, this was great. And um, I, will, I, I will be glad to, to come back if, if people listening to this think that <laughs> it's worth listening to me again. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Bye. See ya.